right, we are rolling once again, brother Kevin. It is so good to be back here with you today. And today our topic is going to be one of those controversial topics because, you know, you and I, we don't like safe subjects, apparently. We like the things that get people clutching their pearls and mainly getting people thinking and challenging some preconceptions. Today we're going to be talking about the final fate of the wicked, which is an eloquent coded way of saying we're talking about hell we're talking about hell hellfire brimstone right yeah yeah Woo! <laughs> that was burn baby burn burn baby burn i was trying to hand that off to you man and it, it fell a little flat but that's okay so whenever we talk about this what we're talking about is that that exists and that will exist outside of this plane of existence we're talking about what comes after this stage of action what comes after this natural life that we live and the popular or mainstream view among most christians across all denominations is that at the resurrection there will be a bodily resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked and i think that to that point you that we agree with that. And honestly, this isn't something that I've really studied that much. It's not something I've given a whole lot of thought to. So I'm really interested in how this discussion is going to go. But after that bodily resurrection and after the judgment, the idea is, is that the righteous will go to heaven forever. They'll be judged and based on um, Jesus and his work and their obedience to Christ, they will enter into heaven and the wicked will go to hell and they will be eternally tormented forever. This is a viewpoint that's referred to in theological circles as eternal conscious torment. But that isn't the only view that exists as it relates to the eternal consequences that await the wicked. There's that traditional view of eternal conscious torment that the good people that serve Jesus and that know God, they go to heaven. But those people that are wicked are tortured in hell forever and ever and ever in fire that isn't quenched, where the worm doesn't um, die, and et cetera, et cetera. But there are also two other views. There's also annihilationism, which is a concept that, um, if we distill it down to its essence, says that hell is a place, it is a real place, where the wicked are cast into after judgment, but they aren't consciously tormented and tortured forever. They are destroyed. They are snuffed out. They simply cease to exist. And then the third position is universalism. And as I understand it, universalism is a position that says that hell is a place where the wicked are purged from their sins. And at the very end, however long it takes, it, they end up being saved and they end up in heaven reconciled unto God after that. And Today, we're going to talk about this idea, but we're specifically going to talk about annihilationism. These are positions that are all old positions. None of these are new thoughts. They've all been around for a very long time. And this is something, like I said, I haven't really given much thought to. This is one of those things that doesn't really matter until it does. And that's a statement that I use in my solo episode, and my doesn't really matter till it does. It's one of those things that it really has no bearing on your standing before God. It really has no bearing on the state of your soul and whether you're in good standing with Jesus or not, if you believe on this one way or another. But for a lot of people, they'll push this issue. And if you don't have the right view about the end of days, if you don't have the right view about the end times, well, then it's a problem. So to that end, there are going to be people that wrestle with this and they're going to wonder, well, what does the Bible teach? Or they may have trouble reconciling the idea of an omnipotent loving God 
with the concept of this God who is supposed to be love torturing someone for all eternity. And that's what leads a lot of people to um, averring annihilationism or universalism. In, in any case, though, we're going to talk about this today in this episode. And I know you have landed in the camp of annihilationism. For me, I haven't really given much thought to it one way or another. For me, it's it's one of those things that it is what it is. And with my faith being placed in Jesus, it's not something I'm really all that worried about. Um, but in any case, there may be some people that are. So that's why we're talking about it today. Yeah, this is not a, a new position, as you brought up uh, just a few moments ago. The view that the wicked will be destroyed is is a pretty old view. And most people are surprised to find out that Church historians, both Christian and non-Christian, believe that this is actually the oldest and most dominant position of the earliest Christians, the early church. For example, early church fathers such as Ignatius and Irenaeus, both in the second century, and also Arnobius in the third century, are the most well-known early Christians who believe that the wicked will be destroyed. And it also appears that a number of early church writers, in addition to them, also taught and believed this as well. But what's interesting is that the idea of the wicked being consciously tormented in hell forever was probably not even the next competing view under annihilationism, at least not in the earliest stages of the church as we know it. Uh, it certainly existed early on, but not the earliest stages. So the second place view, if you will, appears to actually be universalism, which is very interesting because this is the that idea is that ultimately everybody's going to be saved. And this was held by men like Origen in the third century and uh, Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century. And they believe that people would experience the, the wicked specifically. And by the way, I'm going to use the word wicked a lot tonight simply to refer to those who rejected God, those who rejected Jesus. So that's how I'm using that term just to to be a little more simple for people when they're listening. So when I speak of what happens to the wicked, I'm speaking of anybody and everybody who rejected God, who rejected Jesus, who didn't put their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so when we talk about the idea of universalism, there, there were those who believed that everyone would be saved ultimately. But I don't really want to get into a great study on that tonight, but if you want to study this in great detail, I would recommend the resources over at RethinkingHell.com. Joseph Deere, he has written a very in-depth study about this on the historicity with a lot of documentation, so you can actually read those writings yourself from the writers of the early church. Also, Bart Ehrman just came out with a book, too, and he's arguably probably one of the best modern scholars on the topic of early church history, and he's not even a Christian. Um, and, and this is interesting because he himself, too, argues, just as a church historian, that Annihilationism was the prominent and dominant view among the first Christians and the early church. And if you are interested in that book, it's called Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. So when both Christian and non-Christian scholars and students study what the earliest Christian believers believed about the wicked, the point is it's not eternal conscious torment. And, and that really just blows most people's mind because that's all they know about is that if you reject Christ, then you're going to go to hell and be tormented forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But the earliest Christians actually did not believe that. Now, I'm not making this an argument in and of itself, but the point I want to make is sometimes when people hear something new that they've never heard, and I'm sure there's people listening to this podcast, they've never heard this view before that I'm about to talk about tonight. And sometimes the immediate response can be, well, if it's new, then it ain't true. And I've, I've used to say that myself. The problem is, is that 
there's nothing new under the sun. And just because this may be the first time you've heard a position doesn't make it new. Uh, historically, annihilationism is not a new position, but it is actually the oldest position among Christians. Well, with that being the case, though, and with the idea of eternal conscious torment being the most prevalent or seemingly the most prevalent view, at least within evangelicalism, then how did that become such a prominent view? Like, where did that view come from in and of itself? Well, throughout the ages, and we're, we're going to kind of get into this as I go through and talk about a lot of the historicity of this and when this started becoming popular, is most people believe that this was actually brought in through the Greek thought, specifically paganism, the idea that the soul lives forever, that both uh, wicked and righteous actually have eternal life. Not just the righteous, but the wicked also have an immortal soul that's going to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So that thought, as we're going to see here in just a moment, was not actually developed among Christians. It's not a biblical thought. And so it was Hellenistic, more or less, then. Yeah, and I, and I would say, you know, we can't point, to, whenever you're trying to come up with this idea of when did a belief start, you know, it's you really can't know for sure. Right. I mean, there's nothing there's not a point you can just pinpoint and say this is for sure when we know this started to happen because you can't do that with any belief. But the idea was if we all have and this this, by the way, makes sense if we all have an eternal soul and only the righteous are going to go to heaven, then that means that the wicked have to live eternally somewhere. Right. Yeah, it, it stands to reason that that would be the case, because if everyone has an eternal soul and we are all going to live forever, the righteous have to have a place to go. The wicked have to have a place to go. Yeah, And if the righteous are going to go to heaven, then that means that the wicked are obviously going to go to hell forever. So it's with this presupposition that all humans ever created were created with immortality, that everyone has eternal life. And so either you're going to be spending eternity in heaven, or you're going to be spending eternity in hell. That's that idea, that that traditional view that really was heavily influenced by the ideology that everyone has an eternal soul. So what was it then that, with this view being such a prevalent view, what was it that caused you to change your mind on this? Like, how did your perspective shift? And, and for our listeners, because I haven't really studied this a whole lot, this is going to function as kind of more of an interview. I'm going to be asking Kevin some questions and then he's just going to roll with it. So yeah, and you're not going to hear that much from me in this. And Lee and I have actually not even discussed this much before. So Lee may end up marking me by the end of the the podcast. So we'll see what you're happens. Treading it's going to be interesting. treading on some really thin ice, brother. You're treading <laughs> on mighty thin ice. Anyway, what was it that led you to change your mind on this? So originally, I was preaching a sermon on hell, which I so often did. I was known as a hellfire and brimstone preacher. So I'm, I'm very familiar with all the passages on hell and always have been. In fact, fear is what kept me in a legalistic system for many years because I was just terrified. You know, you just, you don't, who, who in the world wants to go and burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever Yeah, while still being alive. But if that's what you believed and that's what you were taught, then obviously that's going to be something that continues to get propagated. And I did, I did not change because I thought this view was too tough. And that's one thing that a lot of times people are accused of when they, 
when they no longer believe that hell is a place where people are going to be eternally consciously tormented because they think, oh, you're just abandoning that view because it's it's too tough. It's 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 a tough message and people just don't want to hear it. Uh, actually, no. If that is what the Bible teaches, then I would be more than happy to accept that. I, I would not question God on that because at the end of the day, God is God. He can do whatever he wants to. Yeah, so. And- well, and a lot of times I think that this view, at least the in the rare moments I've heard it mentioned or discussed, a lot of times it's conflated with the idea that there is no hell. And that's not what you're saying at all. Hell is a real place, but its function is different than what it's commonly understood. That's kind of what you're communicating, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The idea, and this is the way I really summarize the position, is that hell is a real place. The difference is we I don't de- I don't debate or disagree with anybody in regards to hell. What the de- the the de- disagreement centers around what happens in hell. That's that's where the debate is. What happens in hell? We both agree there's a hell and we believe that's where the wicked go. The question is what actually takes place in hell? What happens to the wicked? Traditionally, most Christians at least over the past several hundred years are going to tell you they're going to live forever and ever and ever and be tormented in fire. I say when you go to hell, you are actually going to end up being destroyed. That's the difference. So the debate is not whether there's a hell or not. It's what happens in hell. Uh, Another question that sometimes people bring up, which I don't know if you're going to get around with this or not, but I'll just go ahead and knock this one out just so people are, are clear is people oftentimes use go to the word forever and eternal and things like that when talking about heaven and hell and everlasting punishment. I believe in everlasting punishment. The question is, what is the everlasting punishment? This is a very similar point that I just made. Is everlasting is the everlasting punishment death, destruction, or is it eternal conscious torment? Whatever it is, it's everlasting. So the debate is not on whether or not there's a hell. I believe there's a hell. And the debate is not whether or not is the punishment for the wicked everlasting. It's what is the punishment? What happens in hell? And that's where the focus needs to be. That's where I take issue with with, with people who disagree. Well, and, and it's another thing that's interesting and it's somewhat infuriating is a lot of times whenever positions change like this, it's because... People, people read into that and they begin to cast aspersions upon people whose positions shift. Like you said, you know, oh, well, you change your position because it's too hard. And a lot of times people will say, well, you, ch-, and we'll do a podcast on this later, you know, well, you change positions because you just don't love the truth or you're just not sincere. You just don't want to do what's right or you just don't want to think what's right or whatever else. One of the things that I have learned is that there are so many people that are just as smart, if not smarter than me, that know things that I don't know and they are sincere. They are absolutely sincere. And one of the things that I know about you is, is that there's a lot of things that you know that I don't know. So knowing you and the way I know you and knowing what I know about you, you're not going to change your position unless you've got a really good reason to do so. So what are some of the reasons that led you to changing that position? So in summary, there's two reasons and it's very easy. In fact, when I read some of these Bible verses here in a moment, you're probably going to be thinking to yourself, how in the world did I not see this sooner? And I'm not saying that to be derogatory. I'm not saying that anybody is is, is dumb if they disagree with me, uh, even after listening to why I believe what I believe. Because I don't believe, as Lee pointed out earlier, that this is something that we need to 
divide over. I, I believe you can believe in eternal conscious torment and be perfectly okay. I also believe you're going to be um, shocked in a good way when you find out that's just not the case. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I don't, you know, there are people who say, because I don't believe in eternal conscious torment, that's enough for me to go to hell and be eternally consciously tormented, which is very ironic when you think about it. But uh, I don't believe that yeah. we should we should draw lines like that. Uh, and so when I say I take issue with people who believe this, I don't actually take issue with the people. I take issue with the the uh, the reasons, the arguments, because I just don't believe that they're biblical. And so the first reason why I change is because I believe that the Bible teaches that God only gives the righteous eternal life. And we see this in Romans chapter six, verse twenty three, where the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now we have to remember humans are created beings. We are not gods. We have not always existed. We are not inherently immortal. The only way that we are living right now is because God has given us life. God is the creator of life and he is the sustainer of life. For example, 1 Timothy 6.15 says that God alone has immortality. And what that verse is saying is only God is inherently immortal. God can impart his immortality, but none of us are created as immortal beings. None of us are. God has to give that to us. And so I just want to read a list of verses here to explain to you exactly what I mean. And as I'm reading these, notice that it is only the righteous that is said to have eternal life. In Matthew 19, 16, question was asked, Teacher, and this was asked to Jesus, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? See, the Jews understood they didn't have eternal life, so they needed it. They wanted it. So what do I have to do to get eternal life? 1 John 2, 25 says, This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Romans 2, 7 says, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor, and seek for immortality, he will give them eternal life. Galatians 6.8 says, But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. John 10.28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Talking about his followers. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. John 4.14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him should have eternal life. John six forty seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. John six fifty four. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Acts 13.46, when preaching to the Jews, they said that uh, they had judged themselves. The apostles said that they these Jews had judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. In Romans 5.21, the Bible says, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading those to eternal life through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul says, I fought the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, that he will receive the crown of life. 
And then we also see in multiple passages this concept called the book of life. We see this in Exodus 32, 31 through 33. We see this in Psalms 69, 27 and 28. Paul talks about it in Philippians 4, 3. And then in the book of Revelation, we see this idea about the book of life in Revelation 3, 5 and 21 and 27. This appears to be a metaphor. Whatever it is, it is it is representative as all the people who are saved, all the people who have life, hence the book of life, right? We see in Revelation 2, verse 7, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Remember, going back to creation, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And in fact, he put... Uh, protection, the angel to guard, unless they came and actually ate from the tree and lived forever, the tree of life and lived forever. So that tree is representative of being a life-sustaining source. That's only going to be in heaven. That's only going to be with God. So from the from the beginning until the end of time, from Genesis all the way until Revelation, what we see is this thought pattern of life only being given to those who actually put their faith in Jesus Christ or those, if before Jesus, trusted in God and who followed him. We don't see anyone else receiving eternal life. And so the point that I always make is that the Bible teaches that the wicked do not receive eternal life. I mean, and, and by the way, these are just a few verses, and, and that in and of itself probably bored a lot of people because I know I read a lot there. But um, it, it just proves that there's quite a few verses there, and there's a lot more that prove that, both in the Old and the New Testament. So that that that's one of the reasons why. Wow. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of verses. That's a lot of stuff. But e- even in that, I can't help but think about... First Thessalonians over in, uh, oh, what is it? No, no, no. Is it first or second? Thessalonians? Second Thessalonians one. Yeah. Second Thessalonians. Yeah, one. Everlasting you, destruction. Yeah. You may be getting into that here. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be, yeah. That's actually going to be the second reason here in a moment. Okay. Well, if, if it's okay, I'd like to go ahead and read that because that's one of the verses that I would go to a lot. If I was thinking about the terms of eternal conscious torment, you know, in uh, verse eight, where he says in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And I always took that to mean that this is God discussing and elucidating or the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, that this is an issue that will affect those who are wicked. They will be in that everlasting punishment. And there are some other verses that kind of relate to that that we'll get into later. But um, in any case, that's that's one thing, one of the things that I would look at. But what are your, like, how would you explain that? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so reason one then, in summarizing why I change, would simply be that the Bible teaches only the righteous have eternal life. And that's very clear. <laughs> and the more that I studied that, uh, I'm going to say at least according to the way I read Scripture. Um, every time that I, I pick up the Bible now, I see, oh, wow, eternal life, only to the righteous. Oh, wow, eternal life. The Bible never says anything about the wicked having eternal life. So let's actually turn to the next reason why I change, which has to do with one of the verses you brought up, which is actually a verse that I use to prove annihilationism. 
Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. And so that is reason number two. If let's go back before I get into reason number two, if the wicked do not live forever, and I don't believe they can, because if God is the only one who can give eternal life to the wicked, then that means they will not live forever. It means they can't live forever because they don't have eternal life. God never gave them eternal life. God's not going to give them eternal life. So that begs the question, what happens to the wicked then? Well, the second reason why I change is because the Bible teaches that the wicked is actually going to be destroyed. That the wicked, are they're not going to continue on. They can't continue on. God's not giving them eternal life. There's no way they can continue on living if God doesn't give them eternal life. So what happens? They're going to be destroyed. We see this starting with the Old Testament. And there are just so many verses I actually have here on my side notes that, I mean, it would take three, three or four hours just for me to read all these, literally. And I'm not being... I'm not being funny. It would really take that long to read all these Bible verses. But according to Leroy Froome, the Old Testament uses around 50 different Hebrew verbs to describe the fate of the wicked. And they are all in reference to everlasting destruction, not everlasting conscious torment. And this is in the Old Testament. Uh, This is really emphasized in the poetic books where the wicked are described as passing away are being cut off from the land of the living, being no more, being burned up. And we see these types of passages and imagery. We see this in Psalm 11, 1 through 7, Psalm 34, 8 through 22, Psalm 34, 1 through 40, Psalm 58, Psalm 69, 22 through 28. The bottom line is no passage in the Old Testament is ever seen describing the final fate of the wicked as eternal conscious torment. On the contrary, it's always destruction. It's all. It's not life. It's not continuation. It's destruction. So, well, you do see a lot of that language in the Psalms, but wouldn't the argument be made that that could be just poetic language that references the eternal torment that someone would face? I am so glad you asked that, actually, because, <laughs> and, and I promise people listening, we did not plan these questions. Uh, we really didn't. I, I jotted some notes down, but I mean, we didn't even talk about this beforehand. So one of the arguments that people typically ask is, well, couldn't this just be talking about uh, temporary? You know, like, for example, that God is going to destroy them on earth, right? Like, like th- this is not talking about forever. This is just talking about, you know, because they're wicked, God's going to have his way with them here on earth. That's one alleged rebuttal that, that sometimes people come up with. Here's the problem with that. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, especially, you're going oh, yeah. to see that typically the righteous are the ones who are punished on earth and the wicked are the ones that succeed. You know, we, we see that the psalmist oftentimes, once again, Ecclesiastes, um, Proverbs even talk about why does it seem like the wicked are able to be so successful in life while the righteous are, are punished in this earth. And so... On the contrary, these verses certainly describe, I believe, not the temporal fate of the wicked, but the eternal fate of the wicked. But even then, if someone says, well, this this is still, you know, I understand what you're saying, Kevin. Yeah, I know burned up and pass away and perish. And But couldn't that just, since these are really a lot of poetic books, couldn't that be more or less just figurative? And my answer is, sure, it could be figurative. Here's my response is, where in the Old Testament does it say that the uh, wicked in any sense will continue, much less be tortured forever and ever and ever? Yeah, well, and that's a fair point. And I'm not really aware of anything because I haven't really studied this. I'm not really aware of anything that's 
that's present in the Old Testament that teaches such a thing. Well, there's two places people go to. And one of them's Isaiah, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, so Isaiah 66, 24 is probably not going to be a very familiar passage to most people in the book of Isaiah. It's going to be probably a more familiar passage to people in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 48, where Jesus actually quotes, yeah, Jesus quotes it, yeah. Isaiah. So most people don't really know much about Isaiah 66, 24. They know about Mark 9, 42 through 48. Let me just pull my Bible up here and I'll read this so that people can uh, can get the context. So this is Jesus talking here. And he says, beginning in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And man, if that doesn't teach eternal conscious torment, I don't, I don't know what does. And if you preach, brother, <laughs> preach it. That's what it says. I, man, I can't tell you how many sermons I preached on this. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. People are listening like, Kevin, how do you answer this? Isn't this so clear? Uh, cut off your foot. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, by the way, did you notice that? It's better for you to enter into life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Life, interesting. life, lame. If if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes. And this is this is really that popular, popular verse. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Right there. So that's the passage that I used to use. And I really just, I, I remember preaching a sermon about hell on a lectureship one, uh, oh, this has been years ago now, but it was one night. And I talked about, I just camped out here and I said, there's people who deny that hell's eternal and that people are going to be burning in hell forever and ever and ever. And I quoted this and I quoted it with such passion. You know, I said, listen to Jesus himself. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I said, does that sound to you like people are going to just be out of existence? Does that just sound like they're going to be destroyed? No, it, it, they're going to come on. So I really preach this hard. How many people did you get coming down the aisle after? I mean, you they were terrified, that? right? I'm like, <laughs> now, I even told them, I said, can you turn it about 10 degrees higher than, than normal? Because I want people sweating in here. To, no, I actually didn't do that. But <laughs> <laughs> it was something that probably I, sh- I would have done back in the day. So h- how do we answer this? How do we answer Isaiah 66, 24? Well, actually, how do we answer Mark 9? Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Were you going to say something? Well, it- that's the thing. And it goes back to kind of what we were talking about before we hit record is that idea of those presuppositions that are so powerful and that confirmation bias that exists. So many times we come to these passages with that predilection in our own mind or that, that um, presupposition within our own mind, that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. And so we read, excuse me. So we read that meaning into these passages. So, it seems like to me like the case would have to be made that that is the context and that is what this is talking about. Yeah, if I were to groom you to believe that God is going to throw the wicked into hell to be tormented forever and ever, and then I read Mark 9, 42 through 48, I will grant that sounds really good. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, absolutely, because I have groomed you. I have, I have groomed, and, and, and when I say groom, I don't mean evil intentions, but when we groom each other to believe certain things, we begin to import things into text that aren't there. Um, there's been 
a lot of different psychological studies done that if you groom someone about what they are about to see and you go ahead and put in their mind what they think they're about to see, they'll tell you after viewing a video that they saw something that actually wasn't there simply because they were groomed beforehand to see it. <laughs> and so the same thing is true with the Bible is oh, yeah. we go to Mark 9, 42 through 48. And here's, here's the problem. Most quote Mark 9, 42 through 48, first of all, not even realizing that this is actually a passage, the worm does not die for, is from Isaiah 66, 24, that this is something that Jesus didn't just make up. Jesus didn't just spit and stuff left and right. He is quoting from a well-known prophet. And this is the first question I have for you if you're listening to this. And be honest. Let's be honest here. Can you tell me the context of, and I'm not talking to you, Lee. I'm, I'm talking to anybody out there, and I guess including yourself. Can you tell me the context of Isaiah 66, 24? Of Isaiah 66, <laughs> not so much. I know I've done a lot of study in the in the years or in the, in the months gone by and over the last couple of years about textual criticism and about you know, the formation and formulation of the Bible and how the canon came to be, especially in the Old Testament. And, you know, there's a lot that's been written about Isaiah, but it, Isaiah was one of those books that was written during and either just before, during, or just after the exile. There's some differences of opinion on that, but a lot of it has to do with the reason why Israel was facing the retribution that they were and the judgment that God would execute upon Israel's enemies. That's yeah. the general context of Isaiah in and of itself, but the specific context of Isaiah 66, I have no idea what the context yeah, is. Yeah, and I didn't either. And I didn't either. I had I had preached who knows how many sermons and I didn't even know the context. And so this is actually the context. When you back up to verse 15 and 16, the context here is speaking on how God will execute judgment on his enemies. And he actually says, with a fiery sword. Fire in the Bible always represented judgment. It was a metaphor, always represented. You know, God was actually going to like come down with a, a sword of fire and just start cutting people open. That never happened. So well, yeah, you see that in the Garden of Eden, too, with the, yes. with the angel with the sword. of Yes, it was fire. a judgment, yeah. it, right? It, so it was, it was always some sort of judgment. Um, the wicked will be destroyed and consumed altogether, is what verse 17 says. When the wicked are destroyed, the righteous will continue. This is verse 22. So this is the setting for the crucial verse under, under examination. So you're talking about God's judgment on his enemies. It's gonna, he's going to use a fiery sword. And in verse 17, it actually said the, the wicked will be destroyed. They will be altogether consumed. While the, while the wicked are destroyed, the righteous are going to continue. That's the setting of this context. And then you get this verse that people quote from Jesus. They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For the worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's metal. Now, let me ask you this. Under consideration, are these corpses living or are they dead? A corpse is dead, brother. I mean, the <laughs> a corpse is dead. You you know? Know, it doesn't say they shall go look upon these men who are being tormented. It says they will go and look upon the corpses of these who have transgressed. It's a bunch of dead folks where the worm is eating their body and the fire has destroyed them. That's the metaphor. That's Isaiah. So if I'm a Jew, I know Isaiah 66, 24 very well. 
And Jesus then alludes to this of what's going to happen to the wicked. What's going to happen to the wicked? The same thing that's always happened to the wicked. They're going to be destroyed. I'm going to consume them. They are going to be no more. They are going to perish. They are going to be cut off. The same thing. Jesus wasn't teaching anything new here. (laughs) This is something they understood. No Jew believed in eternal conscious torment. No Jew believed that at all. And if Jesus was teaching that, they'd be like, wow, Jesus is teaching something completely new. No, he was quoting one of their own Jewish texts to show he is saying that if you disobey him, if you do not follow him, if you do not trust in him and his grace, then you will be destroyed, just like those in Isaiah 66, 24. So oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, the fire in con there's other verses here I want to pull in. The fire in context is not quenched. Did you notice that? But yeah. it's not put out until it completely consumes what was put in its way. There's still not a that fire who consumed their enemies is still not burning to this day. It simply is a metaphor showing that this is God's destruction. You can't stop it. There's nothing you can do. This figure and explanation of a quenchful fire is actually seen throughout the Old Testament to reference judgment and destruction in many instances. We see this in Ezekiel 20, verse 47 and 48, Amos chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, and this is never never a phrase applied to anybody who is still living. It's talking about them being destroyed, not being tortured while they're alive. Okay, so that's all well and good and everything else. And I see that point, and I think it's really, really powerful. But even if Jesus didn't necessarily teach that, the Holy Spirit would come after Jesus. He would guide the inspired writers of the New Testament into all truth, and he would remind them of those things. So there was certainly new revelation that came at the hands of the Holy Spirit. So even if Jesus himself didn't make that point, and that point can't be made from from, um, this account that we've just talked about, what about what Jude says in Jude verse 7? Because over here he (laughs) talks about the angels who, well, in verse 6, let me go ahead and read that here. Um, He talks about, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. I always like reading it that way. Strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering (laughs) the vengeance of eternal fire. So couldn't you, couldn't you make the case for, eternal conscious torment from Jude 7, because it seems like that would be a case you could make. So this was actually the first passage I used when I ended up getting into a debate with a Seventh-day Adventist, because a Seventh-day Adventist also are annihilationist. And I was preaching, I was a guest speaker. In fact, most of the time when I spoke at places because of my job at that time, I was the director of the Gospel of Christ. My job was to go over and speak at different places. And I was a guest speaker. And guess what I was preaching on that day? Hell. 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 (laughs) And so he came up to me afterwards and very nice, very respectful. And he said, would you be interested in a study on hell? And arrogant Kevin Pendergrass, pre-2014, 2015, said, (laughs) I would love to teach you the truth about hell. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if the Seventh-day Adventists believe it, we just have to ride it off, oh, right? Of I mean, course. And so yeah. so I ended up getting into this discussion with him, with, and he said, well, can you give me one of the reasons why you believe in hell? And, you know, of course, I had preached this whole sermon. I said, well, I just preached a whole sermon on it. He said, well, I understand, but just give me one verse, and we'll just kind of go from there. And I said, okay. I said, well, Jude, 
Jude one seven, I said, you know, clearly this is this the Bible talks about everlasting fire. And I said, so I don't know how you can deny that people aren't going to be living forever in hell being tormented because there's the Bible speaks of an everlasting fire. I will never forget what he said to me because this is actually what his name's Timothy. And to this day, it's because of him that I even began th- uh, started thinking about this from a different angle because he answered this question so well that it provoked me to continue to look into this topic in depth. And that's been years ago now. But he said this, he said, so you believe then that everlasting fire meant a fire that was going to last forever? I said, well, of course. I said, duh, that's, that's, what, I, that's what it says. He said, well, have you ever gone to the context of the passage Jude is talking about? Of course, once again, being arrogant, Kevin. Well, yeah, of course I've gone to the context. He said, well, do you mind reading a, a couple of verses for me? And that's never a good sign. You know, you know, you are, you are above your, uh, or you're above your head, under your head. I don't know. In over your head. Over your head. That's what it is. I was like, above? Oh, okay. So, you know, when someone is asking you these questions that they know something you don't know, right? So I'm like, oh, great. You know, so he said, well, let's go to Genesis chapter 19, because this is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to read this to you. All right. This is Genesis 19, verse 27. It says, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down. This is the morning after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. He said, Kevin, this everlasting fire didn't even last 24 hours because by the time Abraham got there, all there was left was smoke and nothing but Sodom and Gomorrah who had been destroyed. Every last one of them. The fire of Sodom and Gomorrah not only is still not burning, it wasn't even burning the next morning. (laughs) All that was left was smoke. So what is the point that Jude is trying to get at? That people are going to be burned forever and ever and ever and ever with fire? Or that God's judgment, just as Sodom and Gomorrah's example still stands for us today, that complete and utter destruction is going to be the result of those who do not follow God? And this goes hand in hand with that same metaphor of fire that we see. Everlasting fire does not actually mean fire that never, ever goes out. And furthermore, even if it did, nothing is said about the people in the fire. If, if, if I were to say that there was a fire that lasted three months in California, you're not going to think that all the animals are still living, burning in that fire consciously right now. You would understand that whatever is in its way was completely consumed. And yeah. uh, by the way, that's one of the books, if you really want the extreme in-depth study on this, The Fire That Consumes by Edward Fudge is phenomenal because he even gets into more detail than I'm going to get into tonight. But even the word everlasting doesn't actually have to mean without end. It can, it can also mean within the set time of duration. So clearly we know that from Jude, when he speaks of this everlasting fire happening to Sodom and Gomorrah, it didn't last forever. 
it was the result of the fire that was forever. They were destroyed by God's judgment. And furthermore, even the whole idea of Gehenna, which is the word translated hell. I was hell, just about to ask about that. Yeah, so, so, so it means Valley of, of Hinnom. And this is simply where there, there were a lot of dead bodies. A lot of the kings would sacrifice their children. And this was basically just a valley of where the dead were. So whenever Jesus talks about hell, everyone knows one thing dead bodies. When Jesus talks about Isaiah and the fire does not die and uh, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, you think of one thing, dead bodies, corpses, destruction, people who are no longer living. Um, And so it was just very interesting when I first started studying because that was one of the passages that I looked at that I thought, huh, (laughs) you're right. Sodom and Gomorrah is not still burning. It wasn't even burning the next day because it had already been consumed. The metaphor a fire, everlasting fire, was God's judgment, and there's nothing that could stop it. There's nothing you could do about it. It's a fire that consumes. Well, to me, that seems like it's a pretty strong case. It's a really strong case to be made. Uh, what else do you have about this? Like, what what are some other things? Because I don't really even like know what to ask at this point. Yeah, well, so I actually haven't really gotten into my next affirmative argument yet, so I'll get there in just a minute. But another Old Testament passage that's pretty popular when people talk about uh, the the idea of eternal conscious torment is Daniel chapter twelve, verses two and three, and because it talks about how they will they will look at contempt. Um, the resurrection, that they'll be basically damned and uh, damned to, to um, being looked upon with contempt. And so people look at that and go, well, it says everlasting contempt in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. What happens is people really grab hold of the words forever and everlasting, and they insert people into those words. But you've noticed so far, nothing has ever been said about everlasting people, everlasting wicked. It's it's ever, It's everlasting fire. It's everlasting contempt. It's things that aren't even describing the people. It's the result. So when we look at this idea in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 about the bodily resurrection, we see both the righteous and the wicked will be resurrected, which I believe that. Paul talks about that as well in the book of Acts. But the righteous are judged to what? Everlasting life. And the wicked here in Daniel chapter 12 are judged to everlasting contempt. Now, the contempt here in context is not the experience of the wicked. It's the experience of the righteous toward the wicked. Just because we may look today at Hitler with contempt, that doesn't mean he's still living on this earth today, just because we still look at him with contempt. So when you look at Daniel chapter 2, it's the righteous looking upon the unrighteous, the wicked who are dead with contempt. Contempt. In fact, this same word, are you ready for this? You're going to love this connection. Bring the, it. the Hebrew word translated contempt appears only one other time in the Old Testament, only once. Can you guess where it's at? My assumption would be somewhere we've talked about before, probably Isaiah. Would that be a fair assessment that Isaiah, Daniel 12 and Isaiah 66 are linked? Isaiah 66, 24 where it is translated loathsome. So it's two different English words typically, but it's the same Hebrew word. And guess what? It describes people looking upon dead corpses. So here we see constantly death, 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 destruction, destruction, destruction. Now keep in mind, the first point is the Bible never says anything about the righteous continuing or having eternal life anyway. So even if we didn't... Whoa, 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 whoa. You misspoke. Did I say the righteous? I meant the wicked. Yeah, you did. Yes, sorry. I'm glad you caught me on that one. Um, The Bible doesn't say anything about the wicked continuing 
only the righteous. So if we didn't even have passages that talk about what happens to the wicked, then we would at least have enough information to know that they do not continue on existing and having life because that promise is only made to those who place their faith in God. Okay? So, oh, go ahead. No, no, that's cool, brother. I was clearing my throat. All right, so... I'm going to read some verses to you. So this is the next, this is the reason number two. Okay. So the Bible teaches that the wicked will be destroyed. So we kind of went through some of the passages that people oftentimes use um, to teach the opposite. And so we saw that all of those, if you were a Jew, you're going to understand those mean destruction. But what did Jesus and Paul and the New Testament writers, what did they say about the wicked? Well, let's, let's look. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. This is Jesus. Enter by the garrow, uh, enter by the garrow, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. So the wicked, if they follow the broad gate, that enters into what? Destruction. Those who place their faith in Christ leads to life. Life is paralleled with destruction. John 3.16. I quoted this, I don't know how many times. I mean, people who don't even know Jesus know John 3.16. And yet this verse actually talks about annihilationism. Listen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Wow. Matthew 10.28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Rather, fear him who can what? Destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, this is the question I always ask. If you don't have a soul, you don't have a body, and you're and God didn't give you eternal life, how in the world are you existing in any way? Yeah. <laughs> right, another one. This is the one you brought up. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished. How? With everlasting eternal conscious torment. No, <laughs> that's not what it says. How will they be how will they be punished? What's their everlasting punishment gonna be? Destruction. Destruction. <laughs> destruction. That's the punishment. Destruction. And how long is that destruction? Everlasting. You're never gonna come back. And when that same Imagery was seen in the Old Testament. Whenever God wiped out somebody with this consuming fire, this everlasting fire, it meant they could they would never be built back again. They would never come back again. That would be it. Romans 6.16, do do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is is death. death. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 2.16. Paul's talking about the gospel. He says, to one, it's a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. John 5.20. Let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Philippians 3.19. Paul says, their end is destruction. He's talking about false teachers. Their end is destruction. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You know what? If you believe in eternal conscious torment, just go kill somebody, because if you do that, you're not going to live forever. 
according to 1 John 3.15, because no murder has eternal life in them. Wow. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, sudden destruction will come upon them. 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Acts 3.23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. And I mean, you could go on and on. I've got more, but I mean, my goodness, I know we're we're getting short on time here. So the point that I want to make is we see this over and over and over. So if you were to ask me, why do I believe that the wicked are going to be destroyed? Number one, because the wicked will not be granted eternal life. Number two, because the Bible says explicitly and specifically that the wicked are going to be destroyed. And so this is the way I put it. If, if we argue that people will be, the wicked will live forever in hell, this means they will be granted eternal life. This means they will never die. This means they will not be destroyed. And this means they will never perish. If we believe that the wicked will not be granted eternal life, if which the Bible says they will not, if we believe that the wicked will die, if, that, if we believe the wicked will be destroyed, and if we believe the wicked will perish, then we cannot believe in eternal conscious torment. You can't have it both ways. You can't be destroyed forever in a place while being alive at the same time. It's impossible. No. Yeah, it and so work. you can't be continuing on while still being in existence. You can't be alive whilst, while having perished. You, you can't be, you, all of these things, all of these different words are used. And so either God will give the wicked eternal life or he won't. Either the wicked will die, be destroyed or perish, or they won't. The Bible says they will. And so we're going to get in, I know, to a lot of different questions um, in the next session because People want to talk about the rich man and Lazarus. You know, that's the big one. People want to go to the book of Revelation where we where we see a lot of Jewish imagery there. And I can't wait to get to those passages because we're going to answer some questions Lee and I both have discussed that I believe people will want to know how I respond to those based upon what I just said. And so uh, I'm very excited about getting into all of that. So I hope people will We'll stay tuned because we're not done yet. We're going to get into a lot of those questions that oftentimes people ask. Yeah, and we're going to put that off to the next episode because we've even gone longer than we wanted to. We're really trying hard to keep this at 30 to 45 minutes, and we're at about 54 minutes right now. So we would really love to get into that now, but in the interest of time and in the interest of trying to keep this short, we're going to go ahead and bring it to an end now. Um, but I mean, it's a compelling case. And as far as I'm concerned, I think you're just taking all these verses out of context because you don't believe in eternal <laughs> conscious torment. And, you know, you're just, you're just, you're, you're, you're torturing the scriptures to make your case. And no, nah, I'm teasing. Yeah. And that's sarcasm for those of you who are listening. And yeah, no, dude, it's a hard case. It, it's a really hard case to go against. And like I said, it, it makes a lot of sense. And 
to me, it makes more sense in light of the idea of who God is and him being a God of love. And I think that's the biggest issue that I've had with the position over eternal or of eternal conscious torment is the idea that we have a loving God who is going to destroy these sinners and torment them and torture them forever and ever and ever and ever. If love is your primary essence, that's not something that you long to do. And one of the cop outs that we make for that is, is, oh, well, they're choosing that they're choosing to do it, but still it's, it's the ramifications that God has put into place to me, destruction and annihilationism seems to fall in line with the nature of God revealed in scripture a little bit better, but well, and I'll, and I'll say that personally, that was never a, a big, a huge point of contention for me. Um, I, I really never fought that. And that may surprise a lot of people. I mean, I, I'll say that, you know, it always goes in the back of your mind, but, I, I didn't, that wasn't like a big point like, oh man, this proves everything or this, this is why I really started digging deep into it because I was actually, what really started me down this road was when I was challenged by someone who I thought I was about to straighten out and come to find out they ended up straightening me out. And so it was, it was just interesting to, to look at it that way, because for me, if, if the Bible teaches eternal conscious torment, he teaches eternal conscious torment. I mean, that it's just that simple to me. I'm, I'm fine with that. I have no problem with that. What I do have a problem with is when we cannot prove our positions or at least give what I believe to be a rational case for our position. And uh, when our position is more of a paganistic idea, idea than it is anything else. And so that really kind of go, going back to the beginning when you look at what the Bible teaches, when you look at the early church, when you look at the early Christians, this is what most of them believed. Uh, most of them did believe that the wicked would be, would, they would die. I mean, that's Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This whole dualism, this idea of spirit and body separation, and this, this idea of mankind has immortal souls that are going to live on somewhere forever, it's not Jewish. It's not biblical. Uh, it's not Christian. It's actually pagan. And so it's just very interesting when you start researching that to see that we we hear something, we go, oh, this is a new doctrine. Actually, what, what most people believe today is kind of the newer doctrine, even though it's been around for a long time in comparison with when the church started. So I want to be clear, that's not my argument, but when you start studying the this thing and you really start going down the rabbit hole and you start to look at just passages that, huh, I've never thought of that before. Well, that seems very simple. Paul's saying that if you follow Jesus, you're going to live, and if you don't follow him, you're you're going to die. You're, in fact, by the way, interesting enough, in Revelation, I didn't get to this point, the Bible even speaks of it being the second death, not, not a continue, you know, the second death. And so what is this imagery? If I were to just tell you, you don't have eternal life, you're going to die, you're going to be destroyed, you're going to perish, in what sense would you believe I just told you that you are going to live forever. And furthermore, think of this. If the Bible did teach that the righteous, or I'm sorry, if the wicked, if the Bible did teach, if God wanted to teach that the wicked would not have eternal life, if the wicked would be punished by being destroyed, by perishing, and by dying, how else could he have said it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't say it really any plainer. I mean, than cut that. off, burned, um, no more, like the wheat chat. I mean, he he uses like a hundred different <laughs> illustrations, or the Bible does. It's like, what other language could he use? What else could he say when he talks about the the result of the wicked? He references very popular Old Testament 
uh, passages where everyone understood this was death, it was destruction, it was corpse. What more could Jesus have done and what could have Paul done if they did want to teach annihilationism? What more could they have said? Well, and it goes back to the importance of contextualization and being able to read the scriptures contextually within their context as the writers would have meant it and as the readers would have understood it. And there's no, from what you're saying, it sounds like there's no doubt or there would be no doubt in the mind of a Hebrew reader of a Jewish person that lived in that era, what truth was being presented. The, the idioms and the illustrations would have made perfect sense to them. But in any case, we are way over time. So we need to go ahead and wrap it up, brother. Do you have anything else you want to share before we bring it? To no, a- we'll, we'll get into it some more in the next episode. Yeah, we'll discuss it more. We'll get into the rich man and Lazarus. We'll get into the imagery found in Revelation. We'll also answer some questions that some of you may have. So please send us your questions. We would love to answer them. Once again, we thank you guys for listening. We thank all of our listeners. Our audience is growing, and we appreciate it because we know it's because y'all are sharing this with other people. Please continue to share our podcast. Like us, follow us on Facebook. Um, give us a five-star review on the platform of your choice. We're working on rolling this out to more platforms. So give us some feedback as to where you'd like to see us and where you'd like to hear us. Thank you all so much. Keep us in your prayers as we ever pray for you. We all love you, and we'll hopefully connect with you once again very soon.